the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, which is our text for the sermon this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thank you. You may be seated. There are always people requiring things of us, aren't there? Some are legitimate requests, like spending the proper time with your spouse and your children. That's a good thing. Then there's effort given toward the completion of a certain task so that we might be paid. It's called our job. And then there's payment for goods and services rendered. Most of us don't have any problems with those. They're expected requirements in our earthly relationships. And as our annual day of reckoning with the tax collector fast approaches, those among us who owe taxes may not be quite so agreeable. I never am. We know it's expected we usually take exception with the amount due. On the other hand, when we're given a refund, we always think it should be more, right? But whether it's taxes or whether it's something else, we all understand the concept of owing what is due. But even Christians often need to be reminded that the one to whom we unquestionably owe the most is God. We're indebted and we're indebted to our Creator for our very existence, not to mention that we're accountable for every thought, every word, every deed over the course of our lives. But if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that when it comes to our relationship with God, that we owe something we cannot fully pay. We owe him a holy life. In fact, by the very nature of our existence, and more specifically by what God's revealed in his word to us, he makes it clear that we're to love him with all our being and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And might I say we've all fallen short of that miserably since we woke up this morning. We have fallen short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans chapter 3. We've fallen short of his glory and we instinctively know that we deserve nothing less than his extreme 
disfavor. And we rightly owe him all our perfection, and yet we cannot pay that debt except to be banished from his presence and his goodness forever. Woe is us. Why does God tolerate us, even a little? I mean, I think that, for the most part, daily. As was mentioned in the prayer earlier, God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. He is good and does good. He is merciful, gracious, patient, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness toward his people. So there must be a reason that he tolerates us. There must be a reason he is all that toward us. Is there something else that we can offer? How so, since all we have is entirely insufficient? Oddly enough, we'll find the answer in Jesus' response to a question about owing and paying taxes. Now the subject, just so you'll know, is not about taxes, even though the normal tax day is, uh, is approaching, but I was informed that it has been extended to sometime in May. Don't, uh, don't ask me when that is. I, I don't want to be responsible for you missing the deadline, so check, check online for that or ask someone who knows. So it's not about taxes. But our Lord uses a confrontation with self-righteous Jewish religious leaders to teach a truth about the kingdom of heaven. And the subject they present to him is about taxes. So here in Mark 13, or 12, verses 13 through 17, we'll consider a trap the leaders set for Jesus and then the truth Jesus set before them and sets before all of us regarding the things that are God's. Now, beginning back in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel in verse 27, all the way through verse 44 of chapter 12, Mark relays a series of encounters that Jesus has with the Jewish religious leaders and, in this case, some political leaders, or at least politically-minded Jews, and he contrasts all throughout these encounters the wrong understanding they have of God's kingdom. They look at the old covenant with, given through Moses, the old covenant that God made with the nation Israel, the people of Israel, and making them a nation. They look at that covenant and they say, this is the kingdom. And this is what we want. And they fail to see, as we are told repeatedly in Scripture, that that is but a shadow of the reality that Jesus offers in the church. And then in chapter 13, Mark gives insight into this reality as the old covenant with Israel ends, the new covenant with the Jews and Gentiles begins following Christ's death, following his resurrection and his ascension to the Father's right hand. And so the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ become Mark's focus
for the remainder of the narrative beginning with uh, chapter 14. But prior to that, we saw the parable of the tenants. You'll remember way back in October, I think it was, when we looked at that together. The tenants in the vineyard, verses 1 through 10, which identified the, or 1 through 9 rather, it identified the religious leaders of Christ's day with Isaiah's prophecy of some selfish tenants who abuse God's vineyard, which is Israel, and they kill its true heir, which is Christ. And Mark's hearkening back to Isaiah and his prophecy regarding some of these things, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 8, and so on in Isaiah. But then Jesus makes reference in chapter 12 of this gospel to, beginning with verse 10 through verse 12, to Psalm 118. And you'll remember what he says. He speaks of the cornerstone. The builders see this cornerstone and they say, that's not a cornerstone we want. It won't fit the building we desire. It doesn't fit the kingdom we want. So we reject him. Like a a stonemason sorting through a pile of stones and saying, well, this one won't work, but this one's good, and so forth. Jesus rejected by those greedy for power in a temporal earthly kingdom, he is nonetheless established as the reality of God's promise to be among his people as king. Beautiful, beautiful picture there. Jews and Gentiles, they are, if you look back in verse 9, Jesus asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Not the Jewish leaders, not Israel the nation in and of itself under that old covenant, but to others. Now Jew and Gentile who look to Christ. Jesus clearly told the parable against the leaders. In fact, we're told that in verse 12. The Pharisees hypocritically try to trap him now, to entrap him. They, they lay something in front of him that they think will trip him up, cause him to make a, a faux pas, if that's the right word. And so they conspire with, of all people, the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Well, they're just a group of Jews that are not particularly religious, but they're, they're, politically, they're all for political expediency. And so they see the Herodian dynasty, Herod the Great and his descendants who were in power at this time, they see them as politically advantageous. And of course, the Pharisees look at Rome and they think they're advantageous as well they actually view the occupation of Rome as a punishment for the Jews for not being pious enough. Of course, they were pious, but everyone else wasn't. And so using Rome against Jesus, that's acceptable to them. And this, this uh, coming together with the Herodians, well, they can breach their normal protocol by keeping their distance from such people and work together against Christ. Christ is a problem. That's what I want you to see. 
He is a problem for the kingdom that they desire. And Christ is a problem for any other kingdom in this world. Because the things of God and the kingdom of God are pure and holy. And the things of the world just aren't. That's why God has called us out of the world. That's what the church, the word itself means. Those called out. Called out of what? Called out of the world. Called into what? The kingdom of God. And so an overview of the Gospels identify these who've come to Jesus now, some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians. They are disciples and we're told they are spies of both groups pretending to be interested in Jesus' teaching. I'm guessing they probably changed their normal clothing and sort of just mixed in the crowd and they said, okay, go in and pose this question to him. Their real intention, we're told in Luke 20, verse 20, is to deliver Jesus up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor, which was Pilate. And of course, they will succeed later in doing that, but not with this question. All accounts emphasize their flattering address of Christ. He is, he is true. He's impartial. He's a dedicated teacher to the way of God. All nice words. Now, someone came to us and started talking like that, flowery and all that. You know, we might be swayed a little bit. We might say, oh, well, blushing, say, thank you. I appreciate that. We preachers have to be careful of that when people come up and say, that was a good sermon, right? We have to learn to take that with a grain of salt. They may or they may not mean that. Jesus was not swayed. They asked their question under false pretense. He knows that. Was it lawful according to Moses? That's what they mean. When they say, is it lawful, they mean under the old covenant, under the Mosaic covenant. Is it lawful that we should pay taxes to an occupying ruler such as the Emperor Caesar. Saying yes stirs the Jews against Jesus because everyone hates the tax and we identify with that. But if he says no, don't pay Caesar, well, then they can say, go to the governor and say, he's a rebel, an insurrectionist. He refuses to pay the, ta the tribute tax to Caesar. So you see the conundrum. But that prompts Jesus to now set the truth before them. They try to trap him in his words. He actually traps them with the truth. Jesus is very good at that. Catching his opponents in the truth so that they either have to acknowledge it or deny it. They claim to be in God's kingdom, mind you. You may claim to be in God's kingdom this morning. But when you're confronted with the truth, and we're going to get to that, you have to ask yourself the hard questions, am I?
Were they really in the kingdom? Had they given to God what God requires to enter the kingdom? Had they paid tribute to the Lord? Don't panic. I'm not going to tell you that there are works involved in your salvation. Jesus recognized their hypocrisy. He exposes it by asking them, why put me to the test, first of all? You should know by now. In other words, you've tried this I don't know how many times and you always fail. Maybe he even said that tongue-in-cheek, I don't know. When you think about it, it's just a little bit comical. I'm not that brilliant when people play mind games with me and try to you know, present. I, I, I'm clueless. I don't, that's why I don't like mind games. And then I find out someone has duped me or taken advantage of me. I get a little bit salty, as my daughter says. But um, Jesus is understanding from the beginning what they're up to. Remember back in John chapter, or over in John chapter 2, we're told that Jesus didn't have anyone to explain to him what was in the heart of man because he knew the heart of man. And the Lord knows our hearts this morning. He knows whether there's hypocrisy, whether we're putting on a front, whether we're saying one thing but actually believe another, doing one thing but actually intend another. He understood they had no true interest in God's actual kingdom. They were just attempting to rid themselves of him because he diminished the kingdom they wanted. Maybe you have your own personal kingdom this morning, your life, your way of doing things, believing the lie of Satan that you don't need God to determine what's right and wrong for you. You can determine that for yourself. Maybe. You have your own kingdom with your own law, with your own rules, and Jesus, though you may give him lip service, he stands in the way of that. So the issue of paying the tribute tax to the emperor was a point of contention. The Jews didn't like it. Their occupiers insisted upon it. Every Jew paid the same regardless of status, so it was a national concern. It was, it was a question that everyone would have had. What does Jesus think about this? How does he view our relationship to Rome and, and us as the people of God and the kingdom of God and the law? All these were sincerely on their minds. God in his providence established human government. God in his providence establishes taxes as much as sometimes it pains us to acknowledge that. God in his providence permitted the Roman occupation. God in his providence raises up nations and brings them down, raises up kings and brings them low. They come, they go. The kingdom of God endures. The Jews understood they had to pay the tax. It wasn't a question of ethics, really, for them. It was a political topic. And they thought, hey, 
we can use this strategically against Jesus. And they did. What neither group seems to acknowledge is that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. He gives it to whom he wills, said the prophet Daniel. These kingdoms are permitted. We're told in places like Romans 13 and verses 1 through 7, 1 Peter chapter 2. God allows these to curtail evil, to keep it in check, to keep sin in check while he is in the process of calling his people out of the world and working his work of salvation. It's God's gracious way of keeping things from being as bad as they were in the days of Noah. So God permits them, and he does so for a purpose, but they're temporal. The kingdom of God is eternal. It's always been there. It's always been here throughout the course of human history. It will continue to the end of human history. It will continue into eternity. It is because it's God's kingdom and God is. He was and he is and he is to come, says the scripture. The kingdoms of men require our resources. The kingdom of God requires, however, our soul. And that's why Jesus asked to look at a denarius, verse 15. It was the Roman coin required to pay the tribute tax, a, a day's wage, it was. It had Caesar's likeness on one side and an inscription glorifying his sovereignty over all the nations in the empire. That was on the other side. Jesus forces them to acknowledge who owns the coin and thus who ruled over them. It seems the key to this passage is Jesus' statement, however, in verse 17. I want you to look there with me. Verse 17, and the key word is render. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. His answer to their question is simple. It is to the point, if Caesar owns the coin, Caesar has authority over you. So pay him what is due with what is his. And that's what you're to do on tax day if you owe anything. You pay the government what is due with what is theirs because they're the ones that print the money and give it value. And they are supposed to look after you and do the things the government should do. But we won't go into that. Just know that we are to render that just as the Jews were to render that to Rome. But as I said, God's kingdom is greater. He He's not asking you for your money this morning. He doesn't need it. He wants you to give for the support of the work of the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel. We understand all of that. 
I think. But he's not asking you for your money to get into heaven. God says, you bear my image and the inscription of my authority over you. You owe me your all. Render to God the things that are God's. You want to be in God's kingdom? Give him everything. And listen, give it in perfection. Jesus is likely alluding to the previous parable. The vineyard owner represented by his son who comes in his father's place expected the tenants to render him his portion of the fruit from the vineyard. If the vineyard represents the nation Israel, if the tenants, its leaders to whom Jesus the son came to collect what was due, then what does the fruit represent? Well, it obviously represents the things that are God's. Here's the problem. Our fruit is spoiled. <laughs> Our coin, as it were, is tarnished. The, the image is mostly rubbed off. The inscription is rubbed off from so much use. If any of you collect coins and you're sorting through a pile of coins, you know, trying to find something of value, sometimes you'll see some that you just can't identify. Why? Because it's been used so much. Even the metal has worn. The image and the inscription are unrecognizable. And that's our problem as sinners. While we undoubtedly bear God's rational and moral and expressive image as persons, that image is tarnished. That image no longer reflects holiness. Because God is holy. And you and I are So what God is asking for can't be some inherent perfection in us because there isn't any. I suggest that since we can't give God our perfection, what he requires is something he graciously provides for us. And they are things. And those things are the saving graces of a wholehearted, mournful recognition that we are hopeless sinners. In other words, repentance. And then an absolute trust in his promise of the Son as our Savior. That is faith. The things God requires of you, my friends, are repentance and faith. And you cannot even come up with them on your own. They are graces, saving graces, that God the Spirit provides. God was expecting the Jewish leaders to express and encourage in the Jewish people repentance and faith toward Christ. What, what the old covenant pointed to was Christ. Jesus repeatedly says to the religious leaders, the, the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, they speak of me. And yet, you don't believe in me. 
as the leaders, as the religious leaders in particular, they should have pointed everyone to the, to the Messiah. When John the Baptist came preaching, saying, He is coming. He is in our midst. They should have looked with excitement and said, Let's all repent and receive John's baptism. Let's look for him in faith. But they didn't. Hopefully that's preached over and over in every pulpit in America, but it's not. We would hope it would be. There are leaders who will not turn people to Christ, though they say they follow him. The Jewish leaders didn't. The people didn't know quite what to expect. So they crucify the Lord of glory, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. They refused to render to God his due. They killed Jesus Christ when he came to collect what was due. You see the picture? Here's what we need to see. That the only way to glorify God as one created in his image and likeness is to render to him repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect son. Why? Because Jesus is the exact image of God. As a man, in his humanity, he was perfect. Not only is he God, the Son from all eternity, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, same in, in their essence and their nature and being and so forth. But in his humanity, he is holy. He is perfect. He's everything that we're not. And so that's why Jesus, when he began his public ministry, he didn't come saying, oh, you're, you're pretty good. You know, you're not exactly perfect, but God's going to overlook that. The Father's willing to sweep some of this under the rug. Just... Come along and just follow after me and we'll do good things and we'll make God happy. That's not what he said. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus begins his public ministry after his baptism. What are the first words out of his mouth? Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And that must be our response to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. If that's not our response, we, remained, we remain blinded by Satan in our sins, said the apostle. But these saving graces of repentance and faith are provided by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the new birth. And the Spirit of God works repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20. We're born from above. We're, we're made in the image of Christ, but maybe not in the way that you think. God doesn't just change something in us and give us some new desire and then we are, are then dedicated to, 
to making that image the best it can be and then God's going to accept us based on that. No. No, no, no. The Spirit of God gives us a changed heart so that now we see ourselves the sinners we are. We see then Jesus Christ, the Savior that He is. And if you see yourself as the sinner you are, and you see Christ the Savior that He is, you have what God requires for you to be in His kingdom. You are born from above, and you are baptized or united into Christ's righteous life. Christ's sacrifice on the cross for your sins, His death, and His resurrection as if they were yours. We don't have time, but I would encourage you to read Galatians 3, verses 21 through 29. It talks about being in Christ and what that means in our union with Him. But only in repentance and faith, then and only then do we bear the perfect image of God. It's not our image, it's Christ's image because you're united to Him. How wonderful. Repentance and faith, the things that belong to God in lieu of our ability to present ourselves sinless before Him. We must have the righteousness of Christ or we have nothing to give God. The Spirit works that repentance and faith in our hearts. We give them back to the Father. He receives them and gives us all of Christ and is satisfied. That's how you give to God the things that are His. So don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the Herodians. Don't be like the Sadducees and the unbelieving Jews who marveled at Jesus' response, but who did not repent, who did not believe in Christ, who did not look to faith as in Christ as the Son of God, as the heir to the Father's kingdom. If you don't see Him as that, you'll never come to Him. God must bring you to that point. Anything... Anything that pre prevents you from that is your own short-lived earthly kingdom that doesn't lead to life but to death. Now you can try to diminish God's kingdom by attacking Christians as hypocrites. You know people that do that. You may have done that before you actually came to Christ. They may pose questions to you right and left and what about this and what about that and oh, you're just a hypocrite. Church is full of hypocrites. That's why I don't go. <laughs> well, we're all hypocrites. That's the problem. We put on a mask and we say we're one thing but we're really not and it's only when God comes to you and shows you you're the hypocrite that you are, the sinner you've pretended not to be, only then 
Are you ready to look to Christ in faith? Don't evade the issue this morning. You are a sinner. You've fallen short of the glory of God. His image in you is worn and unrecognizable as holy. It is not holy. See yourself for what God says you are. See Christ for who God says his son is. And give to God the things that are God's. Repent. Believe the gospel. And if you have, you have all the joy of that this morning. I hope as we've sung the hymns and the other songs and as we've read the scripture together and considered it, that you, as a believer, rejoice in who Jesus Christ is. Please pray with me. Our Father, we are so grateful that though we are sinners, ungodly, unrighteous, a marred image of your holiness, you have provided salvation. Not by any work of righteousness that we might do, but in Christ Jesus alone. The righteousness we lack, you provide in him. Our unrighteousness, you punish in his death on the cross. And the life in your kingdom that we desire, we receive because he lives. And he lives unto you, our God and Father. We praise you, Father. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for this word that you have given to us that we might know the things that belong to you, which you've provided, which we give back to you, and all the great benefits that we receive because of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.